We are in Acts. We're picking it up today once again in verse 42. Follow along as I read. It says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and in fellowship, and in breaking in bread, and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's pray for our time together in the word. Lord, we are so thankful that you are a God who is on the move. That you have a a, a desire to reach and to save, to seek out and save those who are lost. And Lord, we are thankful that you have saved us and you've invited us as your people to be involved in your mission. And as we watch and see what that looked like in the life of the early church, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be impacted, inspired, that we would be moved to see what you can do, what you want to do, what you might do through our lives and in our lives as we would just be a people yielded to you. And so we give you our hearts today and this time in Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, my wife and I were... Uh, doing a couple's retreat for Calvary Chapel of Petaluma. And the re- retreat was being held at a hotel up in Lake Tahoe. And during one of the breaks in the sessions, I had to use the restroom. And so I headed to the where the restrooms were, but I wasn't paying close enough attention. And I actually walked right into the women's restroom. It was quite embarrassing Now, I will say that the signs weren't clearly displayed, but I also wasn't paying, you know, a whole lot of attention. And thankfully, the two ladies who were in the restroom were only washing their hands, but the look on their face said, you don't belong here. And I'm sure the horrified look on my face said the exact same thing. Now, I have to say, I've never made that mistake again. I have always very carefully made sure which restroom I was going into. But there have been similar experiences of walking into a gathering of people and suddenly feeling like, I don't belong here. I don't fit in. I'm not welcome. Sometimes it's been just the the scene where you suddenly just kind of feel old and out of place. Sometimes it's been the vibe where it's just walking. It's like, okay, this is not my thing. And sometimes it's been the look on the faces of others that clearly say is saying, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. How many of you have ever experienced that before? Okay. You know, what's interesting in every one of those situations that that has happened, there's a sense of sadness, though, that has come over my heart. Why? Well, I think the, the author John Eldridge said it best in his book Epic when he said this, one of the deepest of all human longings is the longing to belong, to be part of things and to be invited in. 
You see, God has made us as human beings in his image. And one of the the, the things about being made in God's image is that God has made us to be people of relationships. First of all, he wants us to be in relationship with him, but he's also made us to be in relationship with one another. But from day one, Satan has been trying to destroy and distort those relationships. First, our relationship with God. Remember when, when Satan deceived Eve into eating the forbidden fruit? Remember what he said to her? If you eat of this fruit, you're not going to die. What actually is going to happen is you're going to become like God. You're going to be closer to God. But in reality, the act of eating that forbidden fruit created a wedge in her relationship with God. It created a wedge in Adam's relationship with God. And right after eating of that forbidden fruit, we're told that Adam and Eve suddenly realized that they were naked. In other words, there was a loss of innocence. And it says that they were ashamed. And they went and hid themselves. Because that's what what sin does. It destroys intimacy. It destroys innocence. And it brings into our hearts shame. That's what sin does. But it's interesting because Satan not only wanted to destroy man's relationship with God, but he also sought to attack the relationship between the husband and wife. So that when God comes into the garden and he's looking for his two friends and he calls out, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, you know, we discovered that we were naked and so we we hid ourselves. And what did God say? Did you eat of that fruit that I told you not to eat of? Remember, Remember Adam's answer? Adam immediately goes to the blame game. He says, it was the woman that you gave me. So in other words, it's not my fault I feel this way. It's your fault and it's her fault. And immediately there was this wedge that happened in that relationship between the husband and the wife. And in essence, it's interesting because in eating of that forbidden fruit, what Adam was doing was he was really choosing Eve over God. God said, if you eat of this fruit, you're going you're gonna to die. There's going to be loss. And Adam was saying, well, I'd rather lose you than to lose her. But in reality, there was a loss in both. There was a, a break in his relationship with God, and there also was a break in his relationship with his wife. And that's what Satan has been seeking to bring into humanity ever since, to destroy our relationship with God and to bring division and and divide in our relationship with one another. But the good news is, is that Jesus came to restore both. He came to restore our relationship with God and our relationship with one another, to bring unity amongst men. And that's exactly what we see happening here in Acts chapter 2 in the birth of the early church. Let me remind you, this takes place on the day of Pentecost. And it's in Jerusalem. And the population of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, because Pentecost was one of the three pilgrim feasts that all of the Jewish people were required to go to. So the population of Jerusalem, which normally was around 30,000 people, would swell to about 150 to 200,000 people. And we saw a few weeks ago in verses uh, 7 through 11 that there are people there who have come from 14 different countries and areas around the Middle East. And there are all these different people speaking these different languages and different dialects. 
But all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls upon this group of people, 120, meeting in the upper room of this one house. And it tells us there in the very beginning of the chapter that there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. There was this roar. It was like a tornado sound. And people from all over the city, they're hearing this sound. Going, what is that? And they're doing what we do. They're, they're running over and they're coming from blocks away to get to one point. There's literally at least 3,000 people outside of this house. And then they start hearing the, the people in the upper room speaking all these different languages. They're praising God. They're declaring the wonderful works of God. But because of their accents, they can tell that they're Galileans. And I've told you, the Galileans were kind of like the hillbillies. You know, they were kind of like the uneducated folk. And so they're going, they're puzzled. Like, how can all of these hillbillies be speaking fluently all of these different languages from all of these different countries and places that we've all come from? And they're declaring the wonderful works of God. How can this be? What is going on? And that's when Peter stands up. And Peter preaches a message. And he starts by saying, what you're seeing here, this is exactly what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days, that God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And he starts preaching a sermon and he starts teaching and telling them about Jesus and how Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the price for their sins. And all of a sudden he gets the end of his sermon and he gives an invitation and 3,000 people that day give their lives to God. They ask Jesus to come into their hearts. They, They repent of their sin and they turn to the Lord. And in that moment... All of those people, their relationship with God was restored. That's what salvation is. But we also see that there was a restoration that happens amongst this group of people. That's so beautiful. There's a connectedness that begins to to take place in their hearts and in their lives that's played out in the verses that we just read. And we, we begin to see that there were several things that they were devoting themselves to. Look at verse 42 again. It says, and they continued steadfastly. And I told you this last week that in the New Living Translation, the ESV, the CSB, they all read this way, and the believers devoted themselves to. And we noted there were six things that they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or to the teaching of the word of God. They devoted themselves to fellowship or a building community. They devoted themselves to partaking of communion, remembering the cross. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to worship. And they devoted themselves to telling others about Jesus. Now, last week, we spent our time talking about what it looks like for a group of people, for a church, to, to devote ourselves to the Word of God. To be a group of people, a group of believers in a church that is holding up the, the word of God in preeminence here. It's one of our core values here at our church is that we are given to teaching expositionally through the word of God. Today we want to look at their focus, the second thing that they devoted themselves to, which was fellowship. The word fellowship in the Greek is the word koinonia. Everybody say koinonia. Koinonia is a simple word that means to share in common. We all have koinonia with different people all the time during the week. You guys that love to surf together, you are sharing in common your love for the surf. 
Those of you who have, you know, different sports teams, all you Padre fans, you know, are, are sharing in common, like, go Padres today, that they're going to, you know, beat the Phillies, and, and, and we're hoping, you know, in that. And we're sharing in common that. There's, we share in common our likes of different foods. But there's a spiritual connection that also takes place that is even greater than all of that. And it's when we are sharing in common our connection and our love for Jesus. In fact, look at verse 44. It says, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. That is such an interesting statement. Because it really speaks to the restorative work of the gospel, of the work of salvation that the gospel can bring in a society because we're looking at a group of people here that couldn't have been more different, that had so many things that weren't in common. They were from all these different countries. They looked different. They dressed differently. They spoke differently. They were born, we're told in the text earlier, that they were born in these places. And although they were Jewish, they had integrated into these different countries and into these different cultures. They were different ages, different you know, ideologies, different political backgrounds, but they've all come together to Jerusalem and they all meet Jesus and suddenly everything that they didn't have in common gets trumped by this one thing that they have in common. And that's the fact that they were all sinners saved by grace. That Jesus had touched them, that Jesus had done a work in their lives. And so suddenly it says they had all things in common. There's a bond that they have together. Well, where else do we see that type of thing? I mean, maybe at a sporting event, right? I remember years ago going to a Charger game on a Monday night. It was back when Brett Favre was playing for the Jets, and I was so excited that I was going to get to see Brett Favre play live. I'd never been to a, a Charger game before, and it was kind of crazy. And I saw right away just how bonded, you know, all the Charger fans were. That every time their team did something, you know, well, people were standing up and they're high-fiving the people behind them and, and next to them. And, and suddenly, you know, during the game, the Chargers scored a touchdown. And this guy sitting next to me that I did not know hugs me. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you know, I'm like, what in the world is going on? But it was like, this is our team, and we're all excited. I mean, yeah, there was a sharing in common. There was a bond that lasted until the game was over. Because as soon as you got into the parking lot, and everybody's trying to get out of the stadium, right? It's like suddenly that all goes out the window. It's like, get out of my way, you know, and that type of thing. But what we're reading here is so different from that. It's radically different from that. Because this is a bond that they had of God doing something in their hearts. And it didn't just last weeks. It wasn't just a night. It wasn't just this moment. It lasted a really, really long time. And today I want us to consider five things that mark the fellowship of the early church that I think we can learn from today. So if you're taking notes, first of all, the, the first thing that marked their fellowship was their common love for Jesus. Jesus had done something to them. And Jesus had done something in them. And Jesus was going to do something through them. But they were brought together and they were bound together by the fact that they realized that all of them were sinners who had been saved by grace. They had been touched by the love of God. 
And we could say that fellowship begins with God's love. It overflows from God's love. It is centered on God's love. And it expresses God's love. In fact, the Bible says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And it's been poured into our hearts for this reason, that it can be poured out of our hearts onto one another. It was the Apostle John who said this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Remember what Jesus told his disciples? He says, hey, this is how they're going to know that you are my disciples. By these amazing songs that you sing. No, that's not what he said. By how many Bible verses you can quote. That's not what he said either. He said, no, the thing that's going to mark you as belonging to me is the love that you have for one another. And so true fellowship is centered in this mutual awe and love and appreciation for what God has done in our lives and what God is now doing through our lives. But I got to tell you, friends, Too often, what we tend to call fellowship in Christian circles really isn't fellowship at all, because there's no life to it. You know, we get together with our friends, and we have these casual, kind of pointless conversations. I remember when I was a Christian in college, and and uh, going to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. On Wednesday nights, there was a group of me and my friends that we went to this Bible study there together. And then afterwards, we would always go out to Coco's to get some dessert or get some food. And on this one particular night, we're sitting at this table, and we're all about 12 of us and a bunch of girls, a bunch of guys, and we're all talking. And all the guys are talking about the Dodgers and the Angels and the surf, and we're talking about cars. And, and all the girls, you know, they're talking about shopping, and they're talking about cooking and you know they're talking about the beach and you know that type of thing and what they're studying in school what was interesting that night there was another group of young people about our age maybe a little bit older that were sitting at a table um, close to us about the same amount of group of people and and I just started eavesdropping on their conversation. And there's a couple of things that tipped off to me that, you know, they, they probably weren't believers. There was a lot of profanity, a lot of, you know, coarse conversation. A lot of them were drinking, you know, around the table and kind of getting a little bit, you know, buzzed. But as I listened to their conversations, I realized they were talking about all the same stuff we were. Dodgers, the angels, cars, the surf, you know, cooking, shopping, you know, all of that. And so I said to the group at my table, I said, hey, hey, everybody, just be quiet for a second. I said, just listen for a minute what they're talking about over there. And so everybody's quiet and we're listening. And then I said to them, I said, you know, guys, that's everything that we've been talking about. But, the, but the, I think it should be different. I mean, we're all people. We've been touched by the love of God. We've been radically saved by Jesus. We've just came from this amazing Bible study. I, I feel like there should be some other things, more important things that we should have to talk about. And from that night forward, we started making it a point when we got together to be a little bit more intentional about our conversations, to be asking ourselves, hey, what'd you get out of the study tonight? How did God speak to you? What's he been speaking to you about this week as you've been you know, in the word? What are some things that, that I could be praying for you about? 
And it wasn't that we didn't talk about those other things anymore, but it wasn't all that we talked about. There was a point where we got to the place where it was like, hey, what's God showing you? How's he teaching, teaching you? What's he speaking to you? How can I be, be praying for you? And suddenly, every single time we got together, we left feeling closer to Jesus. We, we left feeling stirred up and encouraged by, our, by one another. It, was, it began to resemble what Paul would write about in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, when he said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom with singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And it was just amazing, and it became this just incredible group of people in this incredible time of young people building one another up in the faith. And I want to just say this, church, I think there's a lot more ministry that can happen in our gatherings than what happens just in this room on a Sunday when we're studying the Word and worshiping together. There's a lot more I think that can happen if we take what's happening in here out there into the hallways, out there into the courtyard, by just asking some simple questions of one another like, hey, what was God speaking to you about today? What's God been doing in your life this week? Hey, is there anything that I could be praying for you about? And if we started to do that, the bond and the connection and the fellowship true fellowship that would be happening amongst us, it would deepen and it would grow in a radical way. So first of all, we see that they, their fellowship was marked by this common love for Jesus. Number two, if you're taking notes, there was a genuine care and generosity that they had for one another. Look at verse 45. It says that they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about the early church is this, is that they were living communally out of necessity. People that want to push communal living of believers, they, they, they forget that point, that this was out of necessity because you had all these people that had come from all these different places that got saved, and they didn't want to go home. I mean, they had just been introduced to Jesus and that he was the Messiah and God was doing something in their lives, and they didn't want to leave. It was so radical what was going, they, they, going on. They didn't want to leave that and go back home to their, their normal lives. And so all of a sudden, all the people who got saved that were living in Jerusalem started opening up their houses to complete strangers that had just got saved. Hey, come on, come, on, come stay with me. Whole families are moving in and other people are renting houses together and they're, they're all moving in together and they're living communally and they're sharing you know, food together and they're sharing their lives together. I mean, imagine that. Suddenly just, you know, opening your life and your home up to a bunch of strangers. But everybody was taking care of one another. And we'll see a little bit later in the book of Acts where those who were rich, God starts moving on their hearts and they're selling property that they have and they're bringing the proceeds and they're giving it to the apostles and saying, hey, use this to, to help feed and take care of those who, who are in need. There was this total, we are all in this together mentality. And again, this is one of the core values here at our church, 
It's generosity that we say, you've heard me say this all the time, that we believe that we've been blessed in order to be a blessing. And fellowship involves walking into the hurt and burdens of one another's hearts. Fellowship happens when we're helping one another physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It happens when when we're doing what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, when he said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And one of the things that we're going to see today in so many of the verses that we're going to talk about is this word, one another. It was a central theme. They were bound together. And this is a part of the, the, the beauty of the body of Christ. That true fellowship springs from a heart of being concerned about one another. And realizing that God brings us into one another's lives in order for us to remind each other of the faithfulness of God. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. And he comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others when they are troubled we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given to us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Paul's saying, hey, God brings us together so that we can comfort one another with the comfort that we've received from God. In 2018, when my nephew was killed in a car crash, immediately... When it became public news, one of the first phone calls I received was from my friend Ed Taylor, who pastors in Colorado. He called to see how I was doing. He called to just say he was praying for me because a few years earlier, his son, adult son, had been killed in a tragic accident. And so he knew how our family was feeling. And immediately he reached out to just say, hey, how can I pray for you? No, I'm, I'm here for you and, you know, anything that I can do. And then in 2020, when my dad died, same thing. First person I heard from was Ed. Call and just say, hey, I'm so sorry and praying for you and how are you doing? And Because he knew. He knew what that type of pain from loss felt like. Last year when Ray Bentley went to heaven, when he tragically passed, And I was at his memorial service, and I heard um, his son Daniel get up and talk about how his dad was his best friend and how much he was going to miss him. And I immediately texted Daniel as soon as the service was over and said, bro, I'm here for you. I know how you feel. I go, my dad was my best friend. And we've had some wonderful conversations since about our dads and that role that, you know, they, they played in our lives. But it's interesting, when you suffer, it's like you enter into this fraternity that you never wanted to be a part of, but it's a part of life. It's a part of what we experience, that loss and trials and difficulty. It's a part of this life that that we live in. The Bible says that it rains on the just and the unjust alike, and it's those type of things that connect us. It's those type of things that bond us, and God intends to use us in each other's lives Here's the key, if we let him. God will use us in each other's lives if we let him. He'll use us to comfort one another with the comfort that we receive from God. But you know what the devil wants us to do? 
The devil wants us to retreat into our pain. That's a huge tactic of the devil, is to get us to isolate ourselves. And it's interesting that, you know, that whole idea of isolation has shaped our culture. And COVID has exasperated it. And the enemy is playing upon it. This natural tendency and cultural tendency to isolate ourselves, to keep each other at arm's length. But when we do that, we are robbing ourselves. We're robbing ourselves of the opportunity to be used by God in another person's life. And we're robbing that person of the opportunity of being used in our life. If you travel down the California coast, you'll see all those redwoods up north. They're on the coast and all bent this way as the wind off the, the coast just blowing into them. And it's interesting as they've been weathered by the various storms. But it's interesting, you never ever see a redwood tree by itself. You know why? Because the strength of the redwood is in its interconnected root system. The root system of the redwood doesn't go down, it goes this way. And so when the storm comes blowing against those trees, it's like all the trees are bringing, locking their their roots together and going, come on, we can stand against this. And they're holding themselves together in the midst of that storm. And that's what God wants us to do. That's this key of fellowship. And, And we go through suffering and difficulty and we're locking arms and we're locking hearts and we're comforting one another and we're experiencing what Paul would say. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, when he said, when we came to you, we didn't just give you the gospel, but we gave you ourselves. We gave you our very lives. So number two, there was a genuine love and care that marked for one another, that marked their fellowship. Number three, there was a joy. In verse 46, it says that they met together daily in the temple, but they also met from house to house celebrating the Lord's Supper, sharing meals together with great joy and generosity. In other words, they just liked, they enjoyed being together. And their gatherings involved food. It involved eating together. That was a big part. Having meals together was a big part of their culture. And good food makes everything great, right? Doesn't it make everything better? I mean, Jesus, he even modeled this. He loved to just eat with people. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today for lunch. I mean, he liked this so much that, that the religious leaders, they falsely accused him of being a glutton. Man, that guy likes to eat. And a wine bibber. That guy likes to party. Like, like they're just, they were just always, you know, falsely accusing him in that way. But that was a part. He loved me. He loved just getting together with food around with people. And what does the Bible say? When we go to heaven, what are we going to be partaking in? It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to be eating. It's going to be a big party. And the greatest thing about it, we're going to be able to eat and eat and eat and not get fat at all. I mean, it's going to be awesome, right? Man, I can't wait for that. It's funny, on Wednesday night, we were talking about building bridges in the different generations of men here. Older men with younger men, and 
Aaron Sabi, our student ministry pastor, said that, yeah, one of the greatest ways that we can do that is all you older men need to start asking the younger guys to go out for lunch and go out for breakfast, and you need to pay for them, okay? Because <laughs> none of them have any money, but, but, you know, you guys have money, but just, you know, go out and just spend time with them in that type of way. There's an instant connection that can happen over food. And you break out a good pizza and like start eating like, this is so good, you know, so amazing. But here's the key. You got to be intentional. You got to be intentional. It's one of the reasons why twice a week, almost every single week, I'm, I'm having lunch with one of the brothers in our church or a couple of the brothers in our church. That's why I, I spend time every week just getting together with one of the pastors in our community. And I got to tell you, I could come up with a hundred reasons why I don't have time to do that. But I realize it's important. It's so important to be building those kind of relationships. And so I have to be intentional about it. It's being intentional about when we're going to get together and and what's the purpose of it going to be. It's It's what the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 10 when he says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Some just want to isolate themselves, but you don't do that. But instead, encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's the understanding of, hey, we're living in the last days. We're living in difficult times and we need each other. That God wants to see us like those redwood trees just interlocking our arms together around our love for Jesus. Stirring up each other. Building up each other. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other just as in fact you are doing and guys it is such a beautiful thing to be a part of the family of God it's such a beautiful thing to to see how God can break down all the barriers that divide us when we get focused on the main thing and the right thing and our eyes are on Jesus it's beautiful isn't it how God brings us together. I mean, it was awesome yesterday just seeing that up at the, the convention center with all the guys and all these different guys from all these different backgrounds. And, and you could tell, you know, some of these guys, their, their lifestyle. I know many of them that have come, you know, out of the gang lifestyle. And there's other guys that they used to be cops and they're arm in arm and they're like, yeah, praise Jesus together. That's what God does. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And you know what, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, or you're watching online, you don't know Jesus, and you're like, you know, man, I, I need a family. I don't have a family. God, he invites you into his family. That's why he died on the cross, to pay the price for your sins and rose again so that you could have life because he wants you to be a part of the family of God. But I got to tell you, this family of God, as wonderful as it, as it is, it is a dysfunctional family. It's not perfect because we're all broken. We're all sinners. So I tell you all the time, none of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. We're all broken people who are in the midst of being transformed by our loving Redeemer. So yes, it is a dysfunctional family, but it's the best dysfunctional family around. And the Lord wants us, invites us to be a part of that. And so the early church, they were devoted 
Their fellowship was marked by the joy that they had in being together. Number four, real quickly, we see that there is a fellowship that comes from serving together. We're going to see this even more as we go through the book of Acts, but I have a verse for you where Paul talks about this in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy for this, for your, here's the word, fellowship, your sharing in common in the gospel from the first day until now. And the believers in the early church, they grasp something that I think we often forget. That yes, they were saved to be in fellowship with God. And yes, they were saved to be in fellowship and connection with one another. That God was restoring both of those relationships. But this is what they grasp that we often forget, is that they were also saved to be a part of God's mission. To be on mission with God, to share in what Paul calls the fellowship of the gospel, the sharing of the good news. And this was something that just came so naturally to them because they were just so excited about what God had done in their lives and how he had saved them. And they just wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. We've somehow made that a lot more difficult than it needs to be. But you know, there is a special bond that comes when people are engaged in the Great Commission together. Some of my deepest relationships have come from serving, locking arms with other brothers and sisters in this church and in other churches and and just sharing and, and the gospel together and just trying to impact hearts of people together. It's some of the most, most bonding thing. That's being a part, God calling us to be a part of something greater than ourselves. It's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. And there's an excitement that happens when you see God using someone else and you're able to cheer them on and they see God using you. And, and there's this blessing that happens when you are, are just allowing God to use your life. It becomes this contagious thing. And that's what was happening here. It's why it says in the Lord, the very last verse we read, the Lord was adding every single day the number of people who were being saved. And so the fourth thing that marked was their, that bond that they had in serving together. And we're going to see this over and over again as we go through the book of Acts. But then the last thing that marked their fellowship was this. There was a fellowship that they had in the sufferings of Christ. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. To know the fellowship of his sufferings is the persecution that we encounter in trying to live a life of righteousness. It's what the Bible calls suffering for righteousness' sake. And we'll see in just a few chapters that there was an intense persecution that came upon the early church. And it's interesting because there's a certain bond. Those of you who have served in the military, especially those of you who had encountered combat, there's a bond that you guys have because you experienced something the rest of us didn't, didn't encounter. There's a bond that first responders have because they just see things on a daily basis that, that the most of us, we don't experience that. Well, there's a bond that happens in the body of Christ when we are persecuted for our faith. 
And there's a bond that's going to take place. And it's interesting, Satan brings persecution upon the church, hoping to destroy it, hoping to discourage all of these people to no longer follow Jesus. But it backfires. Instead of weakening the church, the church gets stronger. I remember way back in the day, back in the 80s, I'm dating myself, but one of my favorite Christian bands was DeGarmo and Key. And I remember being at one of their concerts, and Dana Key, the lead singer, said, you know, there's a lot of Christians today that are praying for revival. He said, maybe we should start praying for persecution. Because as I study church history, he said, every place that every time, starting with the early church, that there was persecution, God brought revival. Now, I don't think any of us want to start praying for revival. I mean, excuse me, praying for persecution. We pray for revival. I don't think it's, Lord, please bring persecution on us. You know, Lord, do it, please. But I'll tell you this it's coming. It's coming. Things are getting crazy, guys. The lines are being drawn in the sand. There's a new, there's a, a, a new proposition that you need to vote against, that you need to vote no on proposition one on the next ballot. Proposition one would approve of third trimester abortions. It's crazy, guys. It's crazy the things that are trying to be, you know, just stuffed, you know, snuck in. Well, we're not paying attention. We're in a battle. And we should not have any confusion at all about the abortion issue because the Bible makes it very, very clear, my friends, that, that, that life begins at conception. That God says, I knew you when you were in the womb. And that word he says, I knew, he says, I knew you intimately. I charted a plan, in other words, for your life is the, the idea. Starts in the womb. Have you guys seen these billboards that Gavin Newsom's been putting up in other states? We, we have one here. See this? Need an abortion? California's ready to help. And then he has, a, you can't mind, see this, a Bible verse. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. I would not want to be him on the day of judgment. I'm just saying. That's crazy. That's what's happening in our world, in our culture right now. Here's something that was sent out to the students of Rancho Minerva Middle School, two miles down the street here. Welcome to the Rainbow Club. It says the Rainbow Club is a safe space for LGBTQ plus scholars and allies There are no sign-ups, and since it is at lunch, you do not need to tell your parents if you attend. All are welcome. Our biblical values and morals are under attack, friends. These are 10 to 12-year-old age kids, and they're saying, your parents don't need to know about this. Can you imagine if one of the Christian clubs said, hey, come to the Christian club, and you don't need to tell your parents. How many people would be protesting? What's the deal with these people? What are they trying to pull over? And you know, I want to just say this, okay? The young people, the old people, the people in our culture that are confused about their gender, they don't need to be confused because the Bible is very clear. It says that God made them male and female, period. Male and female. That doesn't mean, though, listen, listen, hear me, that those people are the enemy. 
No, those are people that lovingly need to have the truth shared with them and walk through their confusion with them to help them understand what God's heart is for them. But as parents, we have to stand against these type of things going on in the public schools and say, that's not right. We need to be able to protest lovingly and stand for biblical, respectfully, but standing for biblical values. This is something that went out, um, that just happened in the San Marcos School District. Their, Their school board passed that the California Health Curriculum Framework, this is not mandated by the state, okay? It says K through third graders will be taught that gender is unlimited and expanding and fluid, that their parents chose their gender before they had a chance to decide, but ultimately the decision is up to them. K through third graders in the San Marcos School District. For four through sixth graders, they'll be taught that sexual practices challenge binary concepts about gender and use of gender neutral language like they instead of he and she. And seventh and eighth graders are going to be shared things that are so graphic, I couldn't even share them in this context of a Sunday morning here in church. And get this, they said parents will not be allowed to have their children opt out of such instruction. That's right down the road here in San Marcos. It's crazy. Our family values that are taken from Scripture are under attack. Loved yesterday, Al Pittman, he said this, The health of our nation begins at home. Our children are being confronted in their classrooms with things that need to be addressed by their fathers in the living room. So true. Guys, this is what we're called to. I'm thankful for Hard Academy that meets here. I'm thankful for the Christian schools in our area. I'm thankful for parents who are homeschooling. But I realize not everybody can do that. My grandson goes to a public uh, pre-K school so we have to stand we have to raise our voice we have to say that's not right and we have to educate our families our kids amen Amen. you know some of you might not not have liked that a couple weeks ago i prayed for jen tellis who's running for vista school board some of you might have been a little bit upset like that I prayed for John Franklin today who's running for mayor. And some of you might be saying to yourselves, you know, Pastor Rob, don't bring politics into the church. And I'll just say I'm, I'm not. I'm not. But what I am doing is this. We are called to be salt and light in our culture. And salt has to permeate in order for it to make an impact. Light needs to be seen. As the church, we are called to be representatives of Jesus in this broken world. And one of the best ways that we can do that is by running for office. Standing with those who represent our biblical values, like John, who are running for office. Educating ourselves through things like Impact North County about what's happening and who stands for, for what and who's running for office. But the more that we stand, the greater the opposition is going to get. 
Things are heating up, friends, and we cannot bury our heads in the sand. We are called to know the times and the seasons that we are living in. And if you are not standing for Jesus when it's been easy, you're not going to be able to stand for him when it gets hard. And so right now, it's this idea of us coming together, banding together, locking arms, and being about real fellowship to encourage one another to stand for Jesus, to stand for truth, to share the love of Jesus in this broken world. I'll close with this. In Hebrews chapter 3, the writer says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another, there's that phrase again, daily. As long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction, here's the key phrase, firmly to the end. God is calling us to be those who are holding our convictions firmly to the end. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you so much for this picture that we see of the early church. The fellowship that they had with one another. How they were bound by this genuine love for Jesus. They were bound in their generosity to to give and take care of each other uh, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. That they, they were bound by this sense of joy of what you were doing in their lives and just wanting to share that over meals. And they were bound in serving together, being a part in, in the fellowship of the gospel and being bound in the fact that they would link arms in the midst of the storm of persecution. And God, we want to be those type of people. We want to be that type of church. And so, God, we ask today that you would move in our hearts and move in our lives. Lord, I pray as we have been stirred up today, that it would be that which would result in life and change. Not just a stirring that we forget, but it would begin to impact the way that we live. Lord, I thank you so much for this church family that... I just have the blessing and privilege of being able to be a part of. And Lord, we want to just be the followers of Jesus that you want us to be in this time. This time in the history of the church. This time in the history of our community. Lord, we, re- we realize, we, we believe you've placed us here for a reason and a purpose. And we want to embrace that together in Jesus' name.